Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. If it's fix a fence, defend a fence, I've got lots of experience. Rain gets spent, all the letters never written that don't get sent. It comes from confusion, all the things I left undone. Girls from moment to moment. Yeah, who doesn't have that feeling? You got 20 million. I actually sing that. <laughs> I sing that song around the house. And I think I sing it sometimes, and I'm not aware that I'm singing it. It's, it's by Lil George, by the way. but Because um, it's pretty much how I feel all the time. Um, and, of course, I feel that way even more now that so much of my work life is at home. Although it always was kind of the case. But it's really the case now. And so separating, unloading the dishwasher... From, you know, I don't know, working on a syllabus for my class or something. It just, it's all the same, but there's just a lot of it. And that's a lot of the feeling, uh, uh, I think, that will suffuse today's show. And before I introduce our guest, uh, I I want to dedicate this show to uh, a man named Jim Enderst, who I used to work with. Uh, We worked in the features department of a newspaper. And uh, sometime in the mid-90s, he said the following, when I'm at work, I can't stop thinking about sex. When I'm having sex, I can't stop thinking about work. And that, in kind of in a nutshell, so to speak, is, you know, is a lot of the problem, right? I mean, we don't want to be wherever it is that we are. We can't really get our minds entirely off of work. Uh, and, and there's just sort of a constant war between those two private and professional zones of life. It's also the kind of thing that Jim Enders never would have put in an email or on a Slack channel or anything like that. You know, it's the kind of thing that you will only know that somebody said and, and then incorporate into your own you know, flimsy idea of wisdom if you work there and you are just sort of BSing with people all the time and hearing what they have to say about life. So with all that said, uh, our guest today uh, is Charlie Warzel. Uh, he, with his partner, uh, and Helen Peterson, who's been on the show in the past, uh, has written Out of the Office, The Big Problem and Bigger Premise of Working from Home. If you listen to public radio, you've already heard one, one of them be interviewed in the last few days. But we're going to try to make this as different as possible. But uh, Charlie Warzel, first of all, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So 
Let's just first of all talk about the, the, this kind of fundamental shift that a lot of people did make at the start of the pandemic back in March of 2020. Um, happened at this company, too. Uh, we all realized I actually remember going up to the content director here or whatever he is. And I said, we're going to lose this building. <laughs> you should get ready for that. Order a bunch of Comrexes because we're not going to be able to stay here. And and so people went home. And, and one of the things that you said is that uh, and that you say in this book is that people there's there was sort of a latent notion that oh if I could just work from home my life would be so much better and I'd be better at my job everything would be, would be the same as it is except simpler better and more time efficient and I, you know and what's one of the fallacies in there that I'll have you elaborate on is that that it's easier and you don't have to make vast adjustments in the way you think uh, about your job. But but you take it from there. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought you brought this up because I think it's probably the biggest misconception about remote work in general, which, you know, people who it, it sounds like it's going to be, you know, this amazing convenience and, and it's going to streamline every single thing about your life. It's going to, you know, solve, solve all of the problems. And not only that, but that, you know, there's no commute. It, it's got to be easier. And a lot of people gloss over that because they are, you know, advocates for working from home and, and want it to, you know, to be the big new thing. But the, the truth of the matter is that working from home is, is harder than regular work. But that, you know, we argue in the book is is what makes it actually transformative and what gives it the potential to really change um, a lot of old sort of antiquated notions of uh, of what it means to be a good worker and, and how to work. And the reason why working from home is harder is because everything about it has to be more intentional. When you can't just walk across the room and, you know, go, go talk to somebody uh, uh, and interrupt their day uh, or, you know, just kind of uh, show that you're being busy by, you know, being present in the office. Uh, you, you have to be more intentional. You have to, um, you have to do a lot more planning, a lot more structuring, a lot. You have to have a lot of harder conversations with yourself about what it is you do all day and what it is uh, you're expected to do and, and whether those things line up. And I think everywhere from, from workers to, uh, to, to managers, I, I think, I think it opens the door to having really important conversations about the way we work. You know, one of the things that we, I think all struggle with when we start working at home from home and working remotely, however we want to describe this is what you referred to at one point in the book as the casual quick pop-in. Um, interestingly, you referred to this in the context uh, of, of somebody who started an actual sort of virtual reality version of work where, you know, you basically you can do that with your avatars in this strange, you know, part of the multiverse or something. But but the, the casual quick pop-in is it's a huge thing, I think. You know, it's a it's a it's a time when either an idea that just came into your head, which might not stay there, can get shared with another person, or your latest thoughts about some, you know, brewing crisis, you know, in a very casual way you can you can make your thoughts known. And and you can't do the same thing with the implicit structure of a Zoom meeting or I would say even an email or a Slack thing. Yeah, and and so there's two ways to look at that, right? One is that 
man, this is like, this is killing that spontaneous collaboration that makes, you know, work magical and that, uh, and that makes work social and interesting and varied and, um, and that we're really losing something there. The other way to look at it is that those, you know, quick pop-ins are often intrusive. There are people in the office who feel, um, you know, comfortable making those intrusions in, into your, into your work life and, and sort of taking up that time. And, 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 and there are a lot of people in the office who don't feel comfortable doing that and, and who actually, you know, uh, don't like that. And, and for whom it, it, it disrupts their, their workflow and makes it so they can't do, uh, do work as well. Um, so, I mean, I, I think, you know, this, this gets to a truth here, which is that everyone works differently, but, I'll go back to to what I said, which is earlier, which is that when you when you remove the office from this equation, you you really have to start being intentional about what it is you're doing, how how you're working, and how others around you work. You have to think about that, and it, what it does is it can force you to see your colleagues not as you know uh, different nodes of productivity or, you know, ways to get a, a task done or, or a sounding board to bounce something off of. And you see them more as human beings with individual needs and desires and, you know, ways in which they work. And I, and I think that there is, there's something that, uh, that's really meaningful about that. If, if, if people adopt that mindset. You know, one of the things you say towards the end of the book that I really like is that people who talk about something like the future of work don't think enough about the history of work and specifically about the history of people writing about the future of work and getting it wrong. Um, <laughs> and, and I feel like that it's not just sort of theorists and, and authors like you. It's everybody. Everybody gets it wrong or everybody assumes that there's one size that will fit all. We you, you just made me think about this. Uh, here where I'm sitting right now, I'm sitting in, I'm not working from home today. I'm sitting in a radio studio and out, uh, out the door from where I'm sitting is a big newsroom. And I'm convinced we were the last, one of the last places in America to voluntarily redo a workspace into uh, an open plan, an open office plan, whatever. This is something that you actually deal with quite a bit in the book. And, and one of the things that we did at the time was, I mean, everything was going to be, you know, busted open and people were giving up their offices, including me. But we had to have one, we had one space that we could, that's essentially a green room for guests who are waiting to, to come on a show. And, and that one is a door that closes. And what's happened over the years is people, I mean, until we all left the building, people would fight over that space. <laughs> you know, you'd have to kick somebody else out to go in there and have a meeting or something because, in fact, people desperately wanted that space. And we had a producer, Carmen Baskoff, uh, who she couldn't really work in an office. I mean, if you wanted that space, you had to throw Carmen out of it because she couldn't work in an open office. And, and this is one of the things that I think is intriguing about working from home. We do all work differently. And so you, if you're working from home, presumably can begin to tailor what you do to reflect who you actually are. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, going back to that, that very first part there of all, you know, all predictions about the, the future are, are wrong and don't take into consideration how you, everyone was wrong before. Um, you know, we try really hard in this book not to go there. And, and, you know, and people in, uh, you know, we're doing a lot of interviews for this book and people inevitably ask like, okay, so what, what's going to happen? And like the, the truth is that 
it's not going to be uniform in, in, in every possible way, right? Some people are going to get all the, the best perks and flexibility here. Other people are going to have their bosses, you know, march them back into the office and, and, re- and require rigid policies. Um, most people are going to fall somewhere in the middle. And I do think that, you know, that, that a lot, that, this this kind of hybrid model is probably the one that's going to take hold in lots of places because of the fact that so many people do work differently and 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 that's also inside your job you work differently right there are parts of everyone's jobs that are collaborative and that that really do lose some luster if you know if you can't have that that space to to be generative uh with each other and 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 talk about these ideas but there's also parts of uh of the jobs that require deep work and focus. And like, as we've, as so many of us, including you all have seen, you know, these open office plans, um, they over index the importance of the spontaneous meeting and they don't give enough consideration to the fact that a lot of times you need to concentrate and you need space to, to think and let ideas ruminate and percolate. And you, those intrusions are actually, you know, productivity killers. Right. Is it GitLab that you mentioned? What's the place where you you write a description of who you are and how you work? Yeah, GitLab. So GitLab is, you know, again, this is something that's a little more common in uh, in technology companies. But GitLab is a um, a uh, like a, a technology company. Uh, they deal with uh, like uh, open source coding, and uh, they are a fully distributed company, meaning that they don't have an office anywhere. They have employees all over the world in almost every time zone, uh, and they work asynchronously. They, you know, there are there are very few times of day when, or probably no times of day when everyone is working at the same time. And so, in order to make that happen, they are extremely intentional uh, and open in their communication. So all of their communications, all their meeting notes, all of everything that that happens is uploaded basically to a large database and wiki that anyone can see. So if you are working in the company, you can go and look at the meeting that the sales team had, even if you're in legal or, 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 you know, some other, some other place. Uh, And that allows, the idea there is that it, it allows everyone to kind of work on their own time uh, and and everything is just is is extremely intentional. So the thing that we talk about in the book that we love the most is they make everyone uh, create these README files, which basically is this long instruction manual that everyone writes about how best to operate them. <laughs> and in it, it will say things like, you know, I've got three kids, and you know, <laughs> uh, I'm not a morning person. Uh, I work best, you know, in these environments. This is the best way to talk to me about about new ideas. I'm not good at checking my email. I'm super responsive to texts, you know, whatever it is. And it takes a lot of time to write, and it also takes a lot of time to read. But the end result is, if you do that work up front, you actually know how best to work with with your coworkers. And and it's 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 a really interesting thing to hear uh, employees there talk about. Because they, they say, you know, I'm actually showing them a great deal of respect by putting in the time to read this because it says, you know, I value your time, I value your collaboration, and I, I want to find the way to work that works for you. I, I'd like to see the file, the wiki file on how they came up with that name because GitLab is not a good name for a company. But um, but in terms of valuing your time, let's talk about this. I mean, I think one of the things that most people will agree 
particularly and, and this book we should say is derived from and aimed at the experience of so-called knowledge workers a term that I really really hate by the way uh, I mean it sort of presumes that people who build furniture don't have any knowledge but um, but anyway it's it, it but I think the that particular class of person would say that work it's kind of interesting because if you build furniture or Subarus or something like that, they really want to maximize your time, make sure they get as much as they can out of you in the prescribed eight hours or 12 hours or whatever it's going to be. But at work, it feels like they're really – for us, quote, unquote, knowledge workers, it feels like they're really good at wasting our time. And, and I think uh, that's true whether we're in the office or outside the office. Um, and, and one of the things we've learned while working from home is that – uh, I think it's in one of Clay Shirky's books. He talks about how when the, the easier something becomes to is to do, as it gets easier and easier to do a thing, people obviously therefore do it more. Um, and so at work, it's kind of hard to schedule a meeting, right? You got to find a room. You got to get Carmen out of the room so everybody else can go in the room. You got to you know got to get their bodies there. You got to have a plan. You got to you know. Whereas what we've learned is that Zoom makes it easy. I mean, it sort of eliminates a lot of those thresholds that you have to step over, right? So it seems as though we're having more meetings that run longer. Nobody needs the room because there isn't a room. Maybe you can say a little bit more about that, about how much time can get wasted by your employer, even though you're not there. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm really glad that you brought up that this this book is focused on a on a sort of the privileged sector of 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 the remote of of the workforce that can work remotely. Um, and, and I think that that's an important distinction. Um, one of the reasons why time gets wasted so much in, you know, again, quote unquote, knowledge work is because, in a sense, it's it's become a little bit unlimited, right? Because the because there is there's no place where you can't be doing work. You know, if you, if you are building something on a, on a factory floor or, you know, sorting, uh, sorting packages in an Amazon distribution warehouse, you know, you can't do that without the physical presence, right? You can't, you can't work on, on an assembly line or, or build furniture if, if you're not in the place where you do that. So there are these like sort of hard demarcations, right? You can't, you can't be a, you can't make food for customers if you're not, in the kitchen, in the restaurant, right? And but when with office work with with white collar workers, um, technology has allowed us to be able to do work anywhere and all the time, and so it bleeds into everything and in all of our lives. And that is probably you know, as we address in the book, that it that's that's a huge problem because when you have that sort of unlimited you know, space for work, people aren't as intentional about their time, and especially in, especially employers, right? Well, oh yeah, you know, we'll, we'll, this meeting can go long because we can, uh, you know, we, we can, we can work on the weekends, right? We have that time. We can, we can work from, from wherever. Uh, and I, and I think that's one of, one of the biggest issues there. And, and the way in which this sometimes manifests itself in this quote unquote knowledge work, white collar work is employers and, and, and our culture turns that type of work into a calling or a vocation, right? We just start speaking of it, not as labor. Labor is something that's done, you know, on the, on the, on the factory floor or on the front lines or, or, or what, whatever. 
but that's not the truth. This is this is labor like any other. And when you start thinking of yourself as labor and not as, you know, speaking to a higher calling, you start to see that like, oh, wow, I'm working all the time. What is my hourly value then if I'm working all the time? Well, it looks like I'm actually not valued very much. Uh, it it kind of changes your your whole perception when you start seeing it that way. So uh, we're going to go to a break here in just a second. Well, actually, actually, let's go to the break right now. We're talking to Charlie Warzel. He and Anne and Helen Peterson have written Out of the Office, The Big Problem and Bigger Premise. The promise. I can't even read the title. The Big Problem and Bigger Promise of Working from Home. I'll, I'll get the hang of this job at some point. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. A woman done left took all the reason I was working for. You better not try to stand in my way as I'm walking out the door. Take this job and shove it. All right, we are back. Our guest is Charlie Warzel, who, with Anne Helen Peterson, uh, has uh, written out of the office the big problem and bigger promise of working from home. So we should say you guys did this, right? You left Brooklyn and went to Montana. The idea being you could be journalists anywhere. Uh, how'd that work out? <laughs> uh, well, poorly at first, uh, and then it led to this book. So when when we left, um, I had never worked remotely before, um, and I and and Annie both sort of wrongly, I think, envisioned it as some kind of perk that we had to earn, right? So in order to um, – we had to prove that we would be good workers uh, outside of the office – and in service of that, we worked all the time. Our all of our boundaries between work and life just, you know, were evaporated. And I found myself um, working so much that when I would unwind at the end of you know the week, watching Netflix on my couch, I would actually get cold sweats because the couch was where I did my work. So it's <laughs> sort of like you know, I thought I was in the office and I thought I was slacking off. Uh, that's how bad it got. So after you know three or four months, five months of that, 
we basically realized that like we weren't we we weren't making use of this at all. We were we were trying to earn the perk so much we weren't enjoying it. And not only that, but it was untenable. We were I was especially incredibly burned out. And we decided what we really needed to do was to rethink the way that uh, that that this was all this whole arrangement was was going to work. And so, if, how do we take advantage of this you know this flexible work life and uh, we started this really hard process of doing inventory of, you know, how much work uh, do we actually have? How much work actually had to be done? How much were we working? How do you bring those things in line a little more? And then, and then sort of a bigger personal inventory, which is, you know, at that point, I, I, I realized that so much of my, uh, I, that I was really a, a kind of a one dimensional person. I sort of lived to work and work to live. And, I, you know, a lot of my friendships had suffered as a result. I, I didn't really have any hobbies to speak of. It was, it was honestly, it was, it was pretty sad and I had to do a sort of a really difficult um, reassessment of, of my life and what it is that I value, what I wanted to actually do, what it was that I enjoyed doing and to make time for that. So we started, you know, actually doing this again, I use this word all the time, but this intentional designing of our work days and our weeks and our months and our life in order to, you know, try to, try to incorporate all of those external things outside of work into them, family, friends, uh, charities, causes, things that I cared about, hobbies, and, and find ways to prioritize them as much as work. Um, and it was, it was a difficult struggle, but it was something that you know, slowly you start to get the hang of, you you get into practice in that. And about the time that I did get the hang of it, the, the pandemic hit and we watched everyone kind of speed run our experience, you know, in, in, in real time going in and working from home. And it was, uh, we felt that, you know, maybe we had, we had something to, uh, to share with other people who were going through this just as, as, as we did. Reading your book, actually, I was thinking about something that was written long ago by my friend and mentor, Roy Blunt Jr., who had a piece about the fact that writers, freelance writers who don't work in newsrooms, uh, they almost invariably have worked from home and maybe are working from home, and that's been the case for decades and decades. He had this idea, because nobody at home really believes that you're about to start working, uh, they think you're available to repot a begonia or assemble a toy, uh, that you sh- we should all have coveralls that we put on that have our names on the pocket, you know, just with, say, Charlie, you know, and you put your coverall on it, we'd be assigned to you and everybody else, you're about to start working. If you're not wearing your coverall, presumably, it means... You're you're not working. You are available to go for a walk with the dog or or whatever. Maybe it's it's something as basic as that. But to build on the point that you just made, what's happening right now has been a series of fits and starts. And as you and I are talking, there's I think another fit going, uh, which is Omicron. And and I mean here I'm sitting here in Hartford where the insurance companies had a plan for getting their workforces back, and they were going to kind of lead with upper management. And, and and they are like a lot of companies all over America hitting the brakes right now and saying, wait a second, uh, maybe maybe we're not coming back. Uh, and maybe can you talk a little bit about this, about the whole kind of return to work plan? I mean, not so much in the sense that it's dictated by the pandemic, but it's got to be dictated by something and there's got to be a plan to take all these thousands and, you know, really ultimately millions of people who, who've been working from home and get them back into the office. 
Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that that a lot of people are are thinking, a lot of employers are thinking about this in in the wrong way, which is that you know. <laughs> They're they're not. Uh, you'd think people would be sort of uh, humbled by now by the way that you know nature and outside forces you know are the ones that really get to dictate uh, and and not uh, you know a company uh, strategic plan. Um, you know I, I, I'm I'm a little bit troubled by the 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 you know the managers who who are just so insistent on being in the office. I think it I think it speaks to. Um, I, I think it speaks to sort of a, a really sort of short term and also, um, you know, narrow minded vision of of management and and conception of, of what jobs are. You know, I think a lot of managers are uh, and, and executives are really unhappy with remote work because I think their jobs are probably the hardest to uh, to quantify outside of an office, right? So much of that management is presence-based. So much of it is sort of, you know, playing off of your, your employees and, and being there and, 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 and listening. And, and that stuff is, is a lot harder. It's a lot harder to lead um, outside of the office because you have to do that difficult work of being intentional and really talking to your employees and spending that time as opposed to just kind of, you know, circulating around the, the cubicles and, uh, and, and, you know, and, and being quote unquote, the boss. And I think a lot of managers don't want to sort of learn a new way and don't want to adapt. They like their companies to be agile. They like their employees to be agile and flexible, but they don't really want to be flexible. And, and I would, you know, I, I would note this, we write in the book, one of the best sort of quotes we got in an, inter- in an interview was um, from a, 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 a executive who said that, you know, executives have had flexible work forever. They've always kind of been able to go in and out as they please, and you know, hey, we, I, I'm taking I'm taking the summer. We're going to the beach house, and uh, I'm gonna you know phone into this meeting. Um, and and the only time when when that doesn't seem to work is is when you know rank and file employees get that perk. So I, I, I'm I'm honestly I'm frustrated by a lot of that because I I think that what this pandemic has taught us is that if you want your workforce to be agile and adaptable, um, you need to let them work from a lot of different places. You need to have a lot of different arrangements. I think that's, I think that's the modern way to work. Um, and, and yet there's this obsession with, we got to get back in, we got to get back in. Well, I think also, if in fact you as a manager have this vision, have kind of almost this, this you know, watchword that the only way that you can get people to work is if you manage them, if you manage them directly, then they will fulfill that prophecy. They will become the kind of workers who will only get work done if you're kind of hovering over them and watching them. And and otherwise, they'll just inhabit the space that you've told them to inhabit. In popular culture, particularly comedy, they've known this for a really, really long time. Let me give you a couple of examples. This first one, it's B1 Cat, is from Office Space. Would you walk us through a typical day for you? Yeah. Great. Well, I generally come in at least 15 minutes late. Uh, I use the side door. That way Lumberg can't see me. <laughs> and uh, after that, I just sort of space out for about an hour. Uh, space out? Yeah. I just stare at my desk. But it looks like I'm working. 
I do that for uh, probably another hour after lunch too. I'd say in a given week, I probably only do about 15 minutes of real, actual work. <laughs> All right, and the other example is this guy from Saturday Night Live. This is B2Cat. Tom. Tommy. Hey, Richard, just making some copies. The Tom man making copies. The Tomster, Tomaruski. The Tommeister. Yeah. See ya. Tomo. Oh. Randy. The Randster. Randy Rhinopolis. Hi, Richard. Just making some copies. Randy. That's my name. Don't wear it out. Shamalama Randman. <laughs> bye bye. Randy Rao. Randitola. The great Randino. So it's possible that no amount of flexibility or creativity would induce that particular person, whose name I believe is Richard uh, in the skit, uh, to to use his time more wisely. But it seems to me, Charlie, almost axiomatic that if, in fact, you make the default setting, everybody has to have their butts in their seats for this particular prescribed period of time, you're pretty much setting the bar in a place where people are not going to go over the bar in interesting ways. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I worked in an office, I, I won't say which, or rather I worked, I worked for a company and I would, I would, you know, co- come into the office uh, and I would notice, uh, you know, I was, I was actually working remotely and I, w- I would, at the end of the work day, you know, which let's say it's about six o'clock, I would notice that no one had left. And so I just kind of stayed and hung around and I was like, what's, what's going on? And finally around like eight, I, I said to someone, I said, why, why is everyone still here? Like when I'm, when I'm at home in, in Montana, I don't uh, <laughs> like I clock out at six. That's what I thought the end of the work day was. Uh, Cause I'm done with my work. And they said, Oh yeah. Well, you know, like the, the boss hasn't left yet today. And there's kind of an unspoken rule. We kind of don't leave till the boss leaves. And I was like, so what are you doing? And they're like, ah, you know, I'm just like making, uh, you know, making online purchases or like doing whatever. And that's time that these people aren't spending with their, (laughs) with their families. You know, this is time they're not doing errands, working out, doing things for themselves. It's so wasteful and inefficient. Uh, And, and it's based off of these like strange, Oh, you know, the boss needs to, needs to watch us. And, you know, when I left that job, I, I asked the boss and they did not know that everyone was doing that. And in fact, they were kind of frustrated <laughs> that everyone was was doing that and, and was kind of wasting their time. Um, so, you know, it, this is these types of inefficiencies, they're happening everywhere. But I will say with regard to these, you know, these um, bosses who, who, you know, who who want everyone in the office, at the heart of that is a lack of trust. A lack of trust in people that you've hired ostensibly because they are good employees to do their jobs you know, well under this, under their own terms. Um, if you really believe that, you know, without uh, the watchful eye, without your watchful eye, your employees are going to, you know, mess around and, and not, and not get things done, then, you know, it, it creates it, it, a really toxic um, dynamic at the, at the heart of that. Employees really understand 
when their superiors <laughs> or their, you know, their, uh, their direct, their direct, uh, managers when they don't trust them, they really intuit that. And then, and then they don't trust their managers. And it's just a really, it's a really toxic spiral. Charlie, the one thing I would like to tell you about the story that you just told is if it's Marty Baron, the legendary newspaper editor, you didn't have to anonymize him. It's actually a scene in Spotlight uh, where somebody somebody says it, it, it wasn't just so you know, <laughs> okay. but, uh, but that's that's fascinating. Uh, yeah, there's a scene where at the Boston Globe they're saying, "Oh, nobody can leave because Marty's still in his office until you know eight o'clock at night." Yeah. Uh, all right, so we'll take a break. We'll come back with more of Charlie Warzel after this. We're back. Uh, speaking of workplaces, before we return to this conversation, uh, I, I do want to thank uh, Kat Pastor, who's our technical producer. She's here in the building with me and working from – I have no idea where Lily Tyson is at any given moment. Like I don't even know what coast she's on right now. But um, I mean, that's literally true. But senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, Lily Tyson, is the producer of this particular episode as well. We're talking to Charlie Orzel, who, with Anne Helen Peterson, with whom he shares a life, uh, have written Out of the Office, uh, The Big Problem and Big promise of working from home. So, Charlie, I mean, I think case studies are interesting. Uh, one of the companies that you uh, got some access to uh, was Twitter. And Twitter is a really interesting example uh, of a place whose reaction to the pandemic, whose discovery uh, of how many more people could conceivably working outside the office seemed to be kind of a revelation. Uh, Twitter at one point started talking about maybe they don't need a New York city office or, I mean, sort of talk a little bit about the evolution of Twitter's thinking as you came to understand it. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, <laughs> I'll be the first to say I've been a, a public critic in my uh, other sort of technology uh, writing work uh, for a long time in terms of uh, the, the product, right? But um, in terms of the design of their workforce, uh, you know, we're, we were pretty impressed with Twitter because they're sort of the opposite of what we were we were just talking about with, you know, really rigid sort of you're coming back into the office and you're doing it now. Um, it, Twitter uh, looked at, you know, the, at the pandemic in a way as sort of a, a as some of these other tech companies have as a control experiment, right? Where this like, oh, okay, well, this is a completely different way to work. What lessons can we learn from that as, uh, and, and what can we see as to, you know, whether we can change work to, to, to benefit more people. Um, and one of the things that, that, that they saw was, uh, that the, the flexibility was really adding, uh, it, it was sort of, it, making making work feel more inclusive to more people. So they decided what they really wanted to do was they wanted to have a truly hybrid workforce. They wanted anyone who wanted to work from home be able to work from home in perpetuity and people who, you know, wanted the more collaborative nature of the office to be in the office. But they also realized that that's that's a difficult balance to strike, right? And you have to again to overuse the word be intentional about that. And so what intention looked like there was to say, okay, we don't want to give an advantage to people who come into the office, right? People who are, you know, have maybe have more face time with the boss. We don't want those people to have, you know, to get promoted more easy, to be recognized more, because a lot of the people who are going to choose to stay home are working moms, employees of color. 
and 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 people who we don't want to be you know yet again at a disadvantage. So one of the things they did is they started redesigning their physical workspace, right? They got rid of uh, standardized desks and went with uh, hot desking. So it means you, you know, you don't have an assigned desk. You just kind of have to grab a space. And that, that was so that, you know, there isn't these teams who are constantly sitting together. And if you choose to work remotely, you know, you're not getting all that good, you know, office gossip and you're not sort of, you know, you're not sort of there in those spontaneous unplanned meetings because that would that would be a disadvantage. They they started getting rid of a lot of their office perks, you know, like like the, some of the free food and and uh, you know amazing gourmet free coffee and things like that because they were finding that people were coming in to the office to to get that and uh, it wasn't giving it wasn't kind of leveling the playing field. Um, a lot of these things are really small and, and niche details, and they might sound like they're not that important, but they really are because remote work and 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 sort of re-envisioning it means focusing on those nitty-gritty granular details and and really thinking every step of the way, how does this hurt specific employees and how does this help specific employees? You know, the other part, another part of this, and since Google's a technology company, it would be interesting to build on this, it's something that you write about, uh, is the sheer amount of technological communication systems that we wind up adding. I mean, this is I, where I work is a pretty enlightened and progressive company, but we, of course, use email, and then we use Slack, which was supposed to replace email, but doesn't. Uh, we use Google Docs to collaborate. Uh, and then there's two other things that I don't even understand what they are. One of them is called Smartsheet and the other one's called SharePoint, which sounds to me like some kind of condo development by the beach or something. But <laughs> I don't know what SharePoint is. And I it's a timeshare. It's something. Yeah. So, you know, and, and the problem is, I mean, this is one of the many great myths that one of those things is going to be magical. It's going to be a unicorn that really kind of transforms business communication and it really doesn't. And, and I wonder, like, how do we invent rules about either adding or not adding stuff like that to our workflow? Yeah, it's kind of amazing when you look at the history of a lot of workplace technology. The thing that I sort of the quick history that I love is, you know, uh, there were, everyone was passing around memo and memo and memo uh, and people were drowning in them. And so, you know, companies got computers and adapted to to email to kill to kill the memo and get rid of the paper and you know that worked to an extent but then you were just drowning in digital memos uh and people were drowning in so much email that google actually created a product called gmail that allowed you to you know easily search and store your email at scale in order to kind of help effectively get rid of all that clutter well what ended up happening is when inboxes became infinite people just were you know less uh, less mindful of the email they sent, so people started drowning in even more email. Uh, and then uh, this tool in the mid 2010s, Slack, this uh, workplace chat application and piece of software, which uh, recently went public to huge valuations, it was it was built among other things as an email killer. But as everyone knows, email is not dead at all; it's very much alive. And what ended up happening with Slack is that it it was sort of built on top of the apparatus of, of email instead of killing it and just became another layer of demand uh, of, of communication because people can't get enough of workplace communication because they want to perform presence and show and look like they are busy. Um, and, and sometimes they are busy, I, I should be clear. 
But well, I think it's also Slack is a huge dumping ground for stuff too. At least, at least the way that we use it. I've reading your book. I'm convinced we use Slack the wrong way. But if like I have an idea that I want a whole bunch of eyes on, so to speak, you know, I'll th- like okay, there's a book out about people who historically have been mistaken for gods. Well, that would be an interesting show for us to do. So what do I do? I just splash something into Slack about that, <laughs> and then I just walk away. <laughs> I mean, there's sort of there's a there's the illusion that you've just done something, but I'm not sure you really have. Well, that's the thing about, you know, we're all kind of trying to integrate. These technologies just kind of like come into our lives and they get adopted. And 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 there's a transitional period, right, where we kind of develop the established norms and, and, and standards for how we all want to use them. And I think we're in a bit of a, you know, we're in that adoption period right now with a lot of these additional workplace chat apps and communications where we're kind of, you know, figuring out the decorum as, on the fly. But, you know, you, you asked a little bit about like, how do we sort of impose the, you know, the right restrictions, et cetera. So one thing we talk about in the book is this idea of boundaries and guardrails. Traditionally, we think about work in the sense of these, these boundaries, right? So their boundaries are like self-imposed. I like to think of it as like a state line when you're driving on the, on the highway and you cross into a new state, you see a sign and that's it. You're not like scaling a wall to get into that, in that new state. That's a boundary. It's, it's, it's kind of just put up there. Um, and it can be easily crossed. Um, guardrails are the way that we're trying to think about this. Guardrails are on the side of that highway and they make sure that if something happens, you don't careen into oncoming traffic and have some kind of catastrophic mess. They're put there by a larger institution. They're sort of collectively funded and they're, and they're, they're there to, to help you and they're rigid. And that's what we think needs to happen with a lot of these technologies. Instead of, you know, what we do now is we impose, Hey, you know, you should probably not send any any work email after 6 p.m., right? In, isn't there like a law it. in France that says you're not supposed to do that? I think you mentioned that, right? There, there is, and, and it's certainly it's complex, uh, <laughs> and and it's it's had you know interesting, uh, interesting uh, adoption. Uh, but like you know, the difference between the boundaries and the guardrails is to say, okay, like we we would like it if you didn't send email after after 6 p.m. But if you're a workaholic and you're constantly working. Instead of getting pulled aside and, and told, "Hey, that's the, you know that's against the company policies," it's actually valorized. It's it's lauded, right? You're just a really hard worker. You're just you you, you get things done. Um, a guardrail would be a a policy in which you know all emails after six p.m. have to be scheduled. If you want to get your email done at you know at nine at night or at eleven when when your kids go to bed, you can do that, but you have to schedule it. And have them sent out in the morning because that respects your other coworkers' time. Uh, and if you don't do that, you're going to get called into the office or you're going to get called into HR and people are going to say, hey, like you, you're, you're not being a good coworker. This is actually hurting your, your fellow employees because, you know, they're getting dragged into this kind of stuff during their, during their evening hours. They're not getting the you know, proper rest. They're not spending time with their families. It's driving them crazy and lowering morale and th- therefore productivity. So it's this idea of like really firm policies that it's not incumbent on the worker to sort of police themselves, but it's incumbent on the company to, you know, impose these fairly and across the board. 
But it feels as though – this will be the last question because we're running out of time. It feels as though this is a 180-degree turn for a lot of companies. I mean we're recording this on December 14th, 2021. We've just been through the tornadoes in Kentucky where it turned out that people in a candle factory were threatened with losing their jobs if they went home after a tornado warning. Uh, and, and, and Amazon workers in Kentucky were saying they, they're not allowed to have their phones on their person so that they wouldn't get a tornado warning. We're, we're trying to persuade Joe Manchin that things like a child care plan and expanded pre-K and paid leave, all the things that kind of make a more humanistic approach to work possible belong in a large federal expenditure bill. Um, you know, I mean, we're sort of living in an area where it seems like we're trying to produce, convince both U.S. senators and employers to stop trying to squeeze every drop uh, of work out of workers. What you're talking about is kind of the opposite. How is it the opposite? Well, in the sense that you're talking about companies that would start looking at people and saying, you're working too hard. You're driving everybody crazy with how hard that you're working. You need to, you know, you, you need actually to sort of squeeze inward as opposed to squeezing outward and, and, and retain a little bit of yourself for yourself. I mean, the way I would look at it is, is this, you need both things for this to work. If there's one thing that, that I, you know, am, am pessimistic about, it's that, it's that, that, that sort of like that, government policy uh you know element that you were talking about that is necessary that is necessary for all of this to take hold because if people don't feel like they have you know any kind of safety net if if it feels like life is so precarious that you know if they lose their job and they lose their health care that you know they could be on the brink of financial ruin uh it's going to be very hard for you to impose any kind of, uh, you know, balance in your life. You're struggling just to, you know, get going, uh, just to just to keep up and and survive. Uh, so you need that element of it. But I think also we this this has to happen too from from just a a, a workplace level. Like you, you said it very well with this squeezing every last drop of productivity out of out of workers. I mean, they're being treated as like grist for a mill. And, and that's happening both in, again, in this, in the service sector and, and, in, uh, you know, uh, sort of frontline and, and, and low wage jobs. And it's happening in the white collar jobs as well. And what you're feeling in, in America right now is this untenable, that work has become untenable for so many people. It has, you know, instead of a thing that gives us dignity and worth and value, it's become this just this grind, this thing that takes up more and more time in our life and and that we, you know, increasingly don't feel respected in doing. And I think that, you know, as much we have to keep pressure on politicians and on policy for that, but we also have to, yes, look inward if you are a manager of a big organization and say, is this what you want to be building? Is this even sustainable in the long term? And, and I would argue that it is not. Mm. We'll stop there. The book is Out of the Office, The Big Problem and Bigger Promise of Working from Home by Charlie Warzel and, and Helen Peterson. Charlie, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Working. Darling, I'm working. 